As a legal mind, do you agree with the concept of land expropriation without compensation, as well as the constitutional amendments to the effect thereof? Yes, but this needs context. Hmm. In the current constitutional framework under Section 25, it is possible to interpret that section as not always requiring compensation in the event of an expropriation, particularly financial compensation. What is required under the Constitution is that where there is an expropriation, there should be just an equitable uh, compensation. What that might mean is uh, that a court must apply its mind to what justice and equity require in a particular set of facts. But our experience has been that there is considerable ambiguity and confusion about that particular provision. So it is a good thing to amend the Constitution to make it clear that certain instances do not warrant compensation. Now, that again doesn't mean the default position is that all land that is expropriated will not be accompanied by compensation. It will simply mean that some types of expropriations should not be accompanied by expropriation. So constitutionally speaking, there is nothing incongruous in the, in the proposal as such. Now, the title of your book, The Land is Ours, which was launched this week, couldn't be more apt to the current land debate. Um, tell us about the impediments that we face. And, of course, first and foremost, let's start with your book. What is your book all about, and, and does it address the issue of land reform? Yes, well, my book focuses on lives of specific lawyers that worked in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Now, the common thread that unified their struggles was the struggle against the dispossession of land, and particularly the dispossession as manifested by the 1913 Land Act. So I illustrate how that act applied in practice and how the first generation of black lawyers interpreted the act and waged struggles using the legal system to fight or sometimes to blunt the adverse effect of that act. Now, it's particularly relevant and it's a pure coincidence that the debate exploded the very week uh, that the book was being launched because my book is historical. But it's relevant because it lays the historical foundation for today's debate because, as I've argued elsewhere, today's uh, land distribution uh, system or pattern largely mirrors the patterns that were established in 1913 because we have made very little progress in addressing the historical injustice of land dispossession. At the moment, the current statistics show that of the original 30% that the government intends to restitute in the first five years from 1994, only between 5 to 7% has in fact been restituted. In my view, the Constitution as such has not been an impediment to land reform. Section 25 in particular has not been an impediment. Section 25 contains a mandate for transformation. I think that there have been probably three or four impediments. The first impediment that everyone seems to be avoiding is corruption in the land reform uh, process. The many, many, many cases are bogged down uh, through corruption between government officials, sometimes and land claimants and sometimes and land owners. Prices are artificially inflated 
in order to create space for kickbacks to be paid. The second problem has been just the sheer bureaucracy. And that bureaucracy is manifested by the fact that the institutions of land reform are actually very weak institutions. The institutions are chronically underfunded and the institutions are chronically understaffed. And those institutions are mainly the particular government department that is responsible for land reform, also the commission that is responsible to investigate claims, and then the Land Claims Court, which is the primary judicial organ responsible for the settlement of land claims. Mm-hmm. Now, and then the, yeah, continue, sorry, continue. So I was going to say, then the third problem has always been this misinterpretation of what the Constitution actually requires. And often the problem there is a lot of people say that when a claim is settled, the landowner is entitled to a market-related compensation. Now, of course, the Constitution doesn't say that. And when landowners demand market-related compensation, they just are not doing what the Constitution requires. But it's been misconstrued, misinterpreted, and consequently misused. And that has resulted in the government claiming that it simply does not have the funds to fund land reform. And that's because they measure the claims against the standard of market-related compensation, where the Constitution simply requires just an equitable compensation. Mm-hmm. Now, your book, The Land is Ours, tells the story of the South African of South Africa's first black lawyers in, in the late 19th and early 20th century. In that age of very aggressive colonial expansion, there was land dispossession as well as forced labor. But these lawyers believed in a constitutional system that respected individual rights and freedoms, and, and they used the law as an instrument against injustice. Is that relevant today, you think? Precisely. In fact, it could not be more relevant <laughs> today because the key question that must be answered, if we are, as the book says, if we are to make the slogan, the land is ours, a reality, how, how are we going to do it? So what we learn from the experiences of those uh, lawyers that were practicing in those days, I mean, they were, some of them, the founders of the ANC, what we learn from them was that the only way to create a sustainable future based on justice, equality, and a shared prosperity is to implement a constitutional framework. But a constitutional framework itself is insufficient. It must be underpinned by certain principles. They include equality, they include freedom, and they include justice. And most importantly, if you are going to have a thoroughgoing land reform process, it must be supervised by a judicial system. Because Today it is so that the bulk owners, the majority of the owners of land, happen to be white people because of our history. But tomorrow that might change. And therefore you don't want to create a system where those decisions are left to bureaucrats and politicians. You want to create a system where those decisions are left to an independent institution like the judiciary. So I believe that the lessons that we take from the generation that I have written about are lessons that will guide us even for the future. In fact, they are probably most pressing and most demanding today than they were at the time. Now, let's just move away from the book and and our topic today and deviate a little bit uh, to another equally emotive issue, and that is the display of the old South African flag. Now, you will be representing the Nelson Mandela Foundation at the Equality Court on this matter. (laughs) 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 Can you tell us briefly about it as much as you can, and, and are you able to talk about it now? 
Um, you know, strictly speaking, no. Um, except what you've seen in the press statement, that the case that has been brought by the Nelson Mandela Foundation is that the gratuitous display of flag constitutes uh, hate speech. And quite frankly speaking, the flag has no place in the modern era and it has no place in the new South Africa. Mm-hmm. Now, I've asked the question a little bit earlier, but I would like to test this with you because this is what we ask our listeners. Do you think that we'll ever find common ground on the issue of land redress? The only way we can find common ground is a set of basic principles that should be agreed upon up front. Now, we have some of those principles contained in the Constitution, and if we use the Constitution as an organizing principle, around which we can find common ground, then we probably can start a debate uh, on a reconciliatory basis that will be moving us forward. Now, this is an important point that you raise because it touches upon another question. What does it mean to uh, form common ground? A transition, by its very nature, always has winners and losers because and particularly transition about land reform. Because if you are going to address land dispossession, it is impossible to do so without the compulsory taking away of the land. And you have to take the land from someone. And the principle always has always been, if you do that, you should pay some consideration, some compensation of some sort. And even on that question, it is possible to agree on what pieces of land do not warrant compensation. And it is possible to agree what pieces of land warrant compensation. I sometimes hear uh, people saying, what if I bought my piece of land in the open market? The problem with that kind of reasoning is that the claims that the Constitution envisages would be targeted primarily. And those claims acquired as a result of racial discrimination. In other words, those claims taken directly as a consequence of the implementation of the 1913 Land Act and the subsequent acts that have come. So people talking about how they have acquired their properties in the open market uh, will simply not be affected. So once the hysteria is taken out of the debate, the emotion is taken out of the debate, and the true facts are put on the table, many uh, justice-minded people will actually realize that there is just no basis for the panic. Advocate, I thank you so much for your time and joining us. Wonderful. Thank you very much for the invitation. And congratulations once again on the book. Thank you very much. I uh, (laughs) hope it is uh, not only bought, but also read. (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) Thank you, Advocate. That was Advocate Mbeka Nkaitobi.